Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you all. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. I've been, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Did you even notice? No? Doesn't matter. It's fine. I shouldn't have asked. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, turn to John 15. We're continuing our study called Love and Trouble. If you're a guest here or uh, if you've come with a friend or you've wandered in or whatever, we're really glad that you're here and uh, excited that you're joining with us. And uh, thanks for the jump. Was that, he was just trying to get on screen. Is that what that was? Next time you just come up here. Uh, it's fine. Hey, I mean, it's like some of us don't want to be on screen and others of us are trying them really hard. Uh, what was I trying to do? Oh, I was going to teach the Bible. That's right. Good. No problem. John 15. Uh, we're in an ongoing study called Love and Trouble where we're studying the, the gospel of John, both the incredible love that is on display for God's people in the gospel of John, but also the ways in which that love uh, ends up being a little disruptive, can be a little, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't leave you where it finds you, I guess is the way to take that. Um, This week, as we come into John 15, I want to remind you that in the section of John we're in, Jesus is no longer addressing large crowds. He's kind of moved beyond the the part of his ministry where he's speaking to crowds on hillsides or on mountaintops or whatever. And from chapter 13 through chapter 16, and then even uh, a little in 17, it's more about private instruction. It's more about Jesus speaking intimately to his disciples and those that were in his inner circle about kind of personal issues that he's trying to prepare them for what is ahead. And no place do we see that more clearly than John 15. It's a, it's a famous passage, and as with any sort of famous passage, when we come to it, we want to be on guard against sort of coming to it and going, yeah, I know everything that's in here. We want to look at it fresh every time. This passage in particular, I think, is a text that we have to be reminded about again and again and again. Uh, a week ago, not, not last night, but two Saturdays ago at about 7.30, my family and I were standing in the lobby of the Gershwin Theater in Manhattan. We were, uh, we got tickets to see the musical Wicked. I'd never been to a Broadway musical before. I was out teaching at, um, I was out teaching t- uh, to Hume, New England, which they have a little camp in Massachusetts. I taught all week. And then we did a little traveling with the family over this last week in uh, New York and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia and Boston and a couple of other places. But on Saturday night, uh, last week, we're standing in the lobby of the Gershwin. We've got our tickets. We're ready to go in. Uh, they, they open up the doors for us to go in and take our seats. And uh, we're like 10th in line. And about the time the fourth person got through the turnstile, the lights blink and then the lights go out. And then the emergency generator comes on, and there's a power outage. You may have read about that last Saturday night in Manhattan. We were in the middle of that. And uh, so we're kind of like, what's going to happen? They come out, they say, hey, hold tight. You know, in the 15 years or whatever that we've been doing this show in this place, we've never had a power outage. It's going to come back on. We waited until 8 o'clock. That's when the show was supposed to start. No power. We wait until 8.15. No power. They canceled the show. They say, we're really sorry. We're not going to do it. Power is out basically west of Broadway way from about 60th street all the way down to 40th and uh like even our cell phones weren't working right so there's 2,000 people in the gershwin theater in line right they they send us all out on the street every other broadway theater is also dumping out onto the streets of manhattan there are no street lights there are no walking lights you know for like wind across the street and wind not to so it's literally pandemonium there's no lights there's no tr- i mean it's just i'm waiting for it to break into a riot at any point and i've got my kids with me and we, at that point, I just want to get off the island, right? I just want to get away from Manhattan because I don't know when the thing's going to turn into like a scary movie or whatever. And so I look at my kids and I'm like, okay, we've got to get all the way down to 42nd and 8th. That's where the Port Authority bus terminal is. We got tickets for the bus. We'll just get on the bus. We'll get, go to New Jersey and we'll be safe in New Jersey. Nobody's ever said that before, right? 
The first time in history anybody's ever said we'll be safe in New Jersey. But you guys, it's just chaos. There's people trapped in elevators, so there's fire trucks everywhere. Uh, the police are out because there's all kinds of car crashes. And I look at my kids, and I just said, look, we've got to get down there, and we've got to go right now. There's just these throngs of people. And I said, the only way for you to do it is just to stay with me right? There are going to be lots of people pushing in different directions, but I'm the one that knows the way to the bus station. I'm the one that knows how to get us out of here. And in the midst of all the rest of the chaos right now, what you're going to have to do is in the crowd, stay, remain with me, no matter what sort of tries to pull you away, stay with me and we'll get down there. And so we basically made our way. Luckily for us, the Port Authority bus terminal is south of 42nd, and so the lights were still on there at that time. Actually, the power went out even further in the city uh, much later, about 9 o'clock, all the power went out. We were long gone by that time. And, uh, but, but it was all about them sticking to me because I was the one who could guide them out. Because in the midst of the chaos, I had the information, I had the height advantage, I had the ability to navigate that thing. And all they needed to do, my kids was to stick with me. Jesus is looking at his disciples in John 13 and 14 and 15, and he's recognizing that they aren't totally aware of what's coming, that they aren't aware of the chaos that's ahead, that the the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And so what we've seen in these texts so far, 13 and 14, we've seen Jesus reminding them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will guide you, who will remind you of who you are and whose you are. And now when he gets to John 15, he's reminding them, he he paints a picture of a vine and a picture of a vine dresser. He paints a picture of a branch and he talks about fruit. The primary thing he's talking about in verses 1 through 11, he talks about abiding or remaining and he talks about fruit. In fact, he talks about fruit in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 8. He talks about fruit further on in 16, in verse 5. it's, It's about remaining in him. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the temptation to be pulled in different directions, what his disciples need to know, the way he cares best for them, is to say in the midst of the chaos, keep your eyes on me, because I have what you need to navigate the turmoil ahead and the trials ahead. He's asking them to remain, to abide. And he does that by painting this picture of a vine. There are four main things, the vine, the vine dresser, the the branches, and the fruit. And it's interesting, too, because all throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus talking about the fact that this is his own strategy. Jesus, again and again, has said, I don't do anything of my own accord. I do what the Father commands me. I do what I do because the Father loves me and I love him because I'm in him and he's in me and I want the world to know who I am. This idea of active stillness or of abiding in the Father is Jesus' method for ministry and life. So when he gets to John 15 and he's inviting us to abide, he's simply inviting us to do what he himself has done. In fact, in John 14, which we studied in the last two weeks, in John 14, 20, Jesus says about about the work of the Spirit, he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is saying, I have this unity and this harmony. I'm abiding in my father. 
I do what my Father commands me. In verse, uh, in verse 31, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from there. He, he says, I'm just listening to my Father's voice and obeying my Father's commands. I'm abiding in him, and it will be vital for you all, as he says to his disciples, to abide in me. Jesus is just encouraging us, as a good disciple maker would, to do the very thing that he has done throughout his ministry, to abide, to remain. And he he paints this picture in a couple of ways. The first picture that he paints in the midst of this larger metaphor here is the idea of himself as the true vine. He says, I am the true vine. Now, if you have a John journal this morning, if you've got one of our journals that you're taking notes in, uh, that's great. What you want to do is take your pencil and circle the word true. Because when Jesus leads here in painting this picture of the vine and the branches and the vine dresser and the fruit, as he's talking about himself, the most important thing to see is he says, I am the true vine. You can underline it or circle it. If you don't have a John journal, we want to make sure we get you one of those today. You can grab one in the lobby or at the, at the connections desk. But he says, I am the true vine. And what he's doing is he's painting a contrast there. He's saying, as opposed to all of the things that you might think can sustain you, as opposed to all of the places you might turn for sustenance or for life, I am the source of your life. He said, in no uncertain terms, he said the same thing already in John chapter 14. In John 14, 19, if you remember, he says, um, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus makes it very clear that our life is a result of his life, that we only live because he lives himself, that our life is dependent upon his. He says, I am the true vine. And that would have been important to, especially to the Hebrews that he's talking to at the time. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, they thought of themselves as God's vineyard. And we see that picture painted all throughout the Old Testament. There are places in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. There's a, a passage in, uh, in Psalms. I'll read this one to you. Psalm 80, verse 8, speaking about Israel. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. The Hebrew people thought of themselves as God's vine. They thought of themselves as God's vineyard. They saw their sort of national identity as being their source of life and sustenance. Some theologians have suggested that there at the end of John 14, when he says, arise, let us go, that they may have actually been traveling from one place to another. And if they're passing in front of the temple, on the gates of the temple was a golden carving of a vine, right? And so it's possible at this point that Jesus is literally saying, as they pass this golden picture of a vine... It isn't your national identity, it's not your Jewishness, it's not the church, it's not the synagogue, it's not the temple. I am the true vine. I am the vine that sustains you. And that's a very, that's a very important message for us to hear this morning as well. Because we live in a world that offers us all kinds of things to satisfy us. We are constantly sort of inundated with a barrage of advertisements going, you know what you need to be happy? A new mattress or a new pillow. Or you need this better flashlight. Or if you had a better car or whatever, right? And you're tempted to try these new things because they say they will sustain you. But if you've lived for any length of time, and you have, you recognize that ultimately it still feels sort of unsatisfied. If you're currently in the process of trying to satisfy yourself or sustain yourself through money or power or pleasure or influence or a new mattress or a new pillow or whatever, you find yourself still feeling empty, don't you? 
It doesn't matter what kind of vacation you take. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter how high you work your way up the ladder in the place where you serve vocationally. No matter what, you always feel this sense of, I want more. It's why in Ecclesiastes it says, the eye never has its fill of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Everything that has happened will happen again, and it's all weariness, it says in Ecclesiastes 1. Why? Because none of those things can satisfy us. The money and the pleasure and the power, the vacations and the mattresses, none of those things will satisfy your heart. Why? Because none of them are the true vine. Listen, the reality is that our church is not the true vine. The Christian programs that we run in the capacity of being a church are not the vine. This church, my teaching, the organizational things we've got in place, none of them can sustain you. The only thing that can sustain us is Jesus himself. And what we're not trying to do here, right, what we're not doing right now together is running a social club. We're not here just to have some community and make some friends and raise our kids with morals or whatever. That won't sustain you. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, it's not about the temple. It's not about the family you were born into. It's not about anything but me. I am the true vine. Because I live, you also will live. And that's important for us to remember. That unless we're constantly pushing ourselves back to Jesus, it is possible for us to be led astray by false vines. You might be trying to sustain yourself by your own intellect or sustain yourself by your reputation. There are all kinds of things that you go, yeah, this will satisfy me. And then you get to the end of the road and you go, yeah, I still want more. I still don't feel full. I still don't feel satisfied. You know why? Because those things that you've endeavored to try and satisfy yourself with are not the true vine. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the true vine. Now, he paints us another picture, and the picture there is of the father as the vine dresser. In fact, he says that right here in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. The second picture that he paints in this sort of larger analogy is of the idea of the father as the vine dresser or the farmer. And when he's painting that picture for us, he tells us about two functions of the vine dresser, two things the vine dresser does, and both are in service of the larger plan. It is the vine dresser's program that's sort of being enacted in the vineyard. And he says there's two ways in which the vine dresser works. One of them is through the clearing away. The clearing away of dead and worthless branches. We see that in verse 2 and 6. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So the first thing we want to look at is this idea of him taking away dead and worthless branches. There's been a lot of panic over this verse over time because it says every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit is taken away. Then in verse 6 it says these branches that are withered and dead are only good to be burned. And people are like... What is this talk? Is he, is he, he says branches in him. What's that in me mean, right? You see that there in verse three? Every branch in me. Is that talking about Christians? Is that talking about people who believe in Jesus and then what? They just don't, they're not loving enough or they're not kind enough or they don't lead enough other people to Christ and so then the father comes along and he throws them away? Is that what that's talking about? People losing their salvation. I want you to, I want you to understand 
that the great weight not only of Scripture but even of our study in the Gospel of John is that Jesus will in no way lose those that the Father has drawn to him. That we do not lose our salvation. We didn't have our salvation in the first place because we did certain things or because we answered certain questions right. We had our salvation in the first place because it was granted to us by the grace of God through his death and resurrection. Jesus is not saying that these are people who were true believers and then have not produced fruit and then are taken away and burned. What he's talking about is people who called themselves believers, and we've seen that all through the text. People who called themselves disciples but were only sort of fakers who were just sort of putting on a facade. We saw it in several places. Just to remind you rapidly, I don't want to spend too much time there, but remember all the way back in John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, now Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. We talked at the time about the fact that we probably should put quotes around the word believe. There were many who believed in him because of the signs he was doing, but those weren't people who'd put saving faith in Christ. We see something similar in John chapter 8. If you remember this, in verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there were many in the crowd who apparently believed in him at some level, but he goes on to argue with them, and they argue with him about the fact that Abraham is their father, that they are not slaves anymore. In John 6, verse 66 after Jesus had given this, uh, this discourse, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Were those true disciples? Were those real believers? No, those were people, again, the word disciples there could be put in quotes. Those were people who had the appearance of faith, people who looked like believers, who claimed to be believers, but were only putting on a show. There was no abiding in Christ, there was no remaining in him, and there was no fruit being produced in their life. They were dead and worthless branches. So what do we do with that? What do we do with it this morning? Well, the first thing we want to do is to take that warning with the heaviness in which it's given. The reality is that it's possible to come to a church like this and to sit through a service like this one and to volunteer in programs like we've got here and not actually know the Lord Jesus. It's possible to be in here and put your hands up in the air at the right time and sing the right songs and give the right testimony and not know the Lord Jesus. Can I tell you what we're not trying to do here is to conform people to some sort of moral pattern, but we're trying to lead people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And if you're sitting here this morning and you go, well, how do I know if I'm truly a believer in Jesus or if I'm a dead branch? The answer is Jesus lays it out in 15 is look at the fruit. What is the fruit that's being produced in your life? Jesus says in this text that for those who don't abide in him, they can do nothing. If they don't remain in his love, if they don't remain in his word, nothing can be done. Look at your life and tell me what the fruit, don't tell me, but answer for yourself, what is the fruit of your life? If the fruit is your own pride or the fruit is your own selfishness or the fruit is is your own satisfaction or your own ego, then guess what? That isn't the glory of God, which is what Jesus describes as the fruit in this text. He says there are those who are dead and worthless branches, people who are not connected to the vine and they produce no fruit, and one of the, one of the vine dressers' functions is to clear those people away. Jesus is saying this, and it would have been very acutely, like, they would have been very aware because in John 13, Judas has just left. Did Judas look like a disciple? Yeah. Did he listen to all the same messages they'd listened to? Did he ride on all the same boat rides they rode on? Had he seen all the same miracles they'd seen? Absolutely. Was he a follower of Jesus? No. He was a dead and worthless branch, right? And so they're wrestling with this. They're wondering, what's going on? 
Where's, what was, what's the deal with Judas? Jesus is saying, God will remove those dead and worthless branches. Part of what the vine dresser does is he removes the branches where there's no fruit. The second function he describes of the vine dresser, back to John chapter 15, the second function is the function of pruning. He says, every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This pruning uh, is essential to go from fruit to more fruit, right? And that's the thing that you want to understand is that this isn't pruning for people who don't know Jesus. This is pruning for those who are believers. This pruning occurs for people in whom fruit is produced, but in which God would like to produce more fruit. And so there is this trimming clean, if you will. In fact, it's really interesting. The word here for pruning in verse 2 and the word in verse 3 for clean are almost the exact same word. They're meant to essentially mean the same thing. The idea there is that God has cleaned us, right? So look at what it says in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus says, already you are clean. It's very similar to what he says to Peter when Peter doesn't want to have his feet washed, right? And he looks at them and says, already you are clean. Well, how how is it they're already clean? They're clean because they have heard the word of Christ, that he is the incarnate son of God, the infinite and eternal creator of all things, that he's come to the earth as the Messiah, the chosen one, that he's taken the sins of the world upon himself, that he will die on the cross, that he will rise again. These disciples have heard the word declared by Jesus and their belief in Christ has cleaned them. It's Jesus is painting a picture here in John 15 of the difference between justification and sanctification. Now, those are big sort of theological words, but the reality is that when you and I put our faith in Jesus, when we believe that we are dead and lost in our sin, that that he is the only way to saving life, to be reconciled to God, when we put our faith in him, we are made clean, and that is a fixed and permanent position. That is done through the, the saving work of Christ. But then we spend our life between justification and glorification, which is when Jesus will come back and he will make us perfect. Between justification and glorification, we live this life, don't we? And I'll tell you, spend 30 minutes with me, I'll prove to you I'm not perfect, right? None of us are perfect. In this process, we are being sanctified. What is that? It's the ongoing process of God, the vine dresser, making us what we already are. We have been made clean in Christ and he continues to prune us to conform us to the image of his son gradually over time. And that pruning, I'll tell you, it's not a comfortable process, right? That trimming clean of the things that get in the way, the things that are hindrances, it's, it's not an easy process. It's a hard process. But that pruning is something that God does for those who have already been cleaned by the word of God. Jesus says you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you and you need to be cleaned by the vine dresser. You need to be trimmed clean by the vine dresser. Both occur in the life of a believer to go from fruit to more fruit. But it's really interesting. I think sometimes in our own lives we feel like when, that, when those trials come, when that pruning happens, right? And that pruning can sometimes be painful. In the midst of the difficulty of the pruning of God where he's trimming us clean, where he's removing the obstacles and the things that would prevent us pr- from producing more fruit, I think sometimes in those moments we feel like the pruning of God or the trials that God allows are actually evidence of God's absence, Right? It feels sometimes like evidence of God's neglect. Or if we're going through trials or we're going through difficulty, it feels like somehow God's not there or he's not listening to our prayers. The Bible says the exact opposite is the case. That in those moments when we're facing trial, when we're facing pruning, that is proof of God's affection. It is proof of your daughtership and proof of your sonship. When we studied Hebrews chapter 12, it was very clear. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen to, the, listen to what this is affirming. It's saying that today, if you're dealing with the pruning of God, if you're going through a circumstance where your life is being refined, and by the way, we go through difficult circumstances, and sometimes we get, we get kind of locked into a thing where we start to become defined by our trials, Right? Maybe you've met people and it feels like their whole, like everything about them is the difficulty they've been through. Oh, my parents were divorced or oh, I've been sick or whatever. We were never meant to be defined by our trials. We're meant to be refined by them, right? They're meant to transform us over time. But if you're going through a difficult circumstance now, the pruning of the vine dresser, what Hebrews 12 affirms is that that isn't proof that God has abandoned you. It's not proof that God's not listening to your prayers. It's not proof that he's somehow neglecting you. It's exactly the opposite, that the trimming and the pruning, that careful guidance of the Father in redeeming the circumstance that you're in is proof that you're his kid. It's proof that he sees you and knows you and he cares about the difference of fruit and more fruit in your life. There are circumstances that happen in our life that are the result of the fact that we live in a broken world. I don't want you to get the sense that every gross thing that happens in your life happens because God put it there to test you, right? But God can redeem even the things that happen as a result of brokenness. You may be dealing with all kinds of awful things in your life that didn't happen because God decided to make your life hard, but happened because other human beings sinned, because of the brokenness of the world in which we live that there is difficulty that's coming to your life, can I tell you that even, even that difficulty, our God can redeem. He is a redeemer and re- he redeems it all. It all has redemptive potential. And he redeems it as proof of your sonship, proof of your daughtership. He says, I'm the vine. I'm your only source of life. I'm the true vine. My father's a vine dresser. Don't be alarmed by his pruning. Don't be angry about it. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't you know, curl up in a fetal position, but recognize that that is proof of the Father's love. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul, hero of the faith, says, man, when we were in Asia, we we thought we had a death sentence, but that occurred. We were so grieved, but that occurred that we would no longer be dependent on ourselves, but on God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, yeah, we've gone through trials, but that, those trials have occurred to prove the tested genuineness of your faith. In John 15, Jesus says, you'll produce fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Can I tell you something about that, that evidence? That proof, that proof is not for God. When it talks in 1 Peter about the tested genuineness of your faith, listen, God's never trying to find something out about you. Have you thought about that before? You realize that there's never a time where God goes, you know, I really wonder. 
I wonder if Darren really believes in me. I wonder if he really loves me. I'm going to send a trial in his life to see what I can find out. No, look, God is omniscient. There's never a time where God is trying to discover something about us, right? When it says that the trials have come into our life in 1 Peter so that the tested genuineness of our faith will be revealed, who's it to be revealed to? It's not to God. He knows it already. The tested genuineness of our faith is to be revealed to us. So that in the midst of my trial, I can recognize, no, my faith is in God. When God calls Abraham to take his son Isaac to the top of the mountain, he doesn't call him to to go to the mountain and sacrifice his son there so that God will learn something. He sends Abraham there so that on the way down the hill and for the rest of his life, Abraham will have no question that there is nothing in his life more important to him than God. The tested genuineness of your faith is for you and me. It's for those in our community that the world would see our good deeds, that the world would see our faith and glorify our Father. That's where that tested genuineness is meant to go. The vine dresser is pruning. Don't be alarmed by it. Don't be shocked by it. Even as Judas has just departed, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, the Father is still in control. This removing of the dead branches, this pruning of the live branches is part of the Father's purpose. So he talks about himself as the the true vine. He talks about the father as the vine dresser. And And then thirdly, he talks about us as the branches. All through John 15, listen to the way he says it. He says in verse three, or in verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you have your pencil and you're taking notes, underline that. You can do nothing. And you might look at that and go, well, what? I mean, what's he talking about? I can do all kinds of things apart from Christ, right? I can have a great career. I can find myself an awesome wife or a great husband. I can make a lot of money. I can become famous. I can do all kinds of things apart from Christ, right? What, what he's saying here, and this is Jesus saying it, is that while there are all th- kinds of things you can occupy yourself with, apart from abiding in Christ, in the kingdom of God, in the economy of the kingdom, all of those efforts and all of those endeavors, all of that striving equals nothing. It's a big zero, a goose egg. Can I ask you, church, how much time you've spent this week occupied, striving, stressed out, worried about nothing, literally, biblically worried about nothing, apart from abiding in Christ, apart from his love, apart from his call for you, apart from the life-giving sustenance that only the true vine gives, how much time do we spend in endeavors that are worthless? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Remember when I'm in Manhattan and I'm looking at my kiddos and I'm saying, we got a long way to walk. We got, we got several blocks to walk through thousands of frantic people. And the only way we're gonna get from here to there is if you remain with me. It's not that we weren't moving. It's not that we weren't going. We weren't just hunkered down. No, we were on a journey. But what they had to do was remain with me despite all the temptations to lean out, despite the temptations to go to the hot dog cart or to buy a slushie or to chase a rat or whatever else in Manhattan, right? There's all kinds of things that would pull us away. Jesus is saying, no, we're gonna be on this journey together, but you have to, you have to remain in me. What does that abiding mean? Well, he gives, us, he gives us two pointers in John 15. The first one, the first pointer we see with regard to abiding is in seven. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The first 
uh, the first idea that Jesus gives us with this abiding is that we would remain in his word, that we be actively still in his word. The things that he said, that very word that cleansed us in the first place, right? Remember John 15, 3, right there. He says, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That cleansing word, he says, remain in it. Don't turn away from it from the left or the right. Don't listen to all of the other things that would vie for your attention. Be actively still in my word. It's why Paul says to Timothy, don't forget how you learned about the faith and the power of God's word to produce fruit in you, right? Don't forget about the scriptures and their value. We want to remain in what God has said. Not only do we want to remain in what God has said, but he also gives us another pointer. Look at verse nine. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, right? Oh, abide in my, isn't that beautiful? And you think, well, okay, I abide in his word and I abide in his love. So that just means I gotta set up like a full length mirror and I'm gonna go home today. I'm just gonna wrap my arms around myself and just go, oh, Darren, Jesus just loves you so much. Yes, he does. He loves all the little children and you too. Yes, he does. He loves bald guys or whatever, you know, whatever, right? That it's just like me self-affirming, abiding in his love is just sort of me like speaking good, healthy, religious self-talk to myself. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, abide in my love. And here's, here's how he clarifies, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Remember, what Jesus is saying to us, his disciples, is that to weather the storm of life, you have to remain in me. And the reason I know that's true is because I have remained in my Father in the midst of the storm I'm in. I have abided in my Father's commandments and therefore abided in my Father's love. I've been obedient to my Father. I've listened to his voice and therefore I have remained actively still in the Father's love for me. You do the same because I'm the true vine. And the way you remain in my love is to obey me. What is, what is that? I mean, that, that seems like something a parent would say, right? The way you remain in my love is to obey me. No, what we learn from that is that all of God's commandments, all of Jesus' expectations for us as creatures, as created beings, are an expression or an articulation of his affection. Let me say it to you again. Everything that God has said to us, this is how you should live. This is how you should treat one another. This is how you should care for the poor. This is how you should worship. This is what you should care about. All of those instructions are an expression and an articulation of the affection of God for you. I think sometimes we think about God's commands as like, you know, he just sort of arbitrarily chose some things that he would make us do. No, no, no. He created you. He knows how your life is best intended to live. And when he gives us instruction and he calls us to align with that instruction, it's because he wants us to feel and know his love, to abide in his love. He's the true vine. The Father will prune. The Father will clear away the dead branches. But we are called to abide in his word and to abide in his love by obeying his commandment. And what's the result then? The result, we see it in verse eight. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What's this fruit? It's it's not just the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, although it includes that. It's not just leading other people to Christ, although I think it includes that. Jesus isn't narrowing down what fruit is. He's giving us the the broadest possible definition of fruit. What he says fruit is in our lives. You want to know the fruit? The fruit, he says, is the glory of God and the proof of discipleship. The glory of God and the evidence of discipleship. The word proof is not actually even in the original text there. But the idea is that discipleship is made manifest. Your discipleness is put on display. What is this fruit? Well, it might be love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, you know, the stuff out of Galatians. But it's more than that. 
It's a life that glorifies God. I can tell you if this morning you're occupied with being sustained by something that isn't life-giving, the fruit that's being produced in your life is corrupt. The fruit that's being produced in your life is not for the glory of God, it's for the glory of self or for the glory of sex or the glory of money or the glory of pride. But when you are connected to the Lord Jesus, abiding in his word and in his love, there is this fruit, this much fruit that is produced in us, God's glory and the proof that we are disciples, both to ourselves and to the world. But I, I want to be clear this morning, this fruit is not something you do. Fruit, let me say it louder, is not something you do. So if you've come here today and you've listened to all this and you go, okay, Jesus is saying that fruit is the proof of my discipleship and it's the way God is glorified, so I just gotta do fruit, right? I gotta do love and I gotta do peace and I gotta share my faith with other people and I gotta just do all this Christian-y religious stuff. In fact, maybe you came into church today hoping that I was just gonna give you a list of things to do. Can I tell you that isn't the way Jesus directs disciples, It's not Jesus' approach to discipleship to say, do this and do that. Jesus' approach to discipleship is to say not, hey, make this kind of fruit, because branches don't produce fruit. The vine produces fruit in the branches. The fruit is a result of being connected to the right kind of tree, being connected to the vine, being under submission to the vine dresser's purpose and his plan. That's the way fruit is produced. There's never a time where an orange tree is like, oh man, I really gotta make oranges. No, that's just a natural byproduct. But how much time do we spend trying to change our morality, trying to change our behavior, trying to change our actions, trying to look externally religious or to produce this kind of fruit by our own, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps mentality. Jesus is not saying, try harder to look Christian. In fact, if that's the way you receive this, you will be on the absolute opposite track because Jesus is not saying, try harder to look like me. What he's saying is, abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in my word. Remain actively still in my word. We got a long way to go if we're gonna get to the Port Authority, right? If we're gonna get to the safety of New Jersey, I'm the one that knows where we're going and I'm the one that knows how to get you there and I am the one that has redeemed you and cleaned you through your word, Jesus says. And so just stay with me. There will be all kinds of temptations to chase hot dogs and rats. Stay with me. And we'll get where we're going. You guys, we can't be reminded about this enough because our purpose as followers of Jesus is rooted in this idea of remaining in Christ. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're gonna have to catch me. If you want to be sustained, if you want life, I'm on the move, you gotta find me and catch me and hope I'll give you some of this. No, he's saying, you're with me because you were clean. You're with me, so just stay there. Don't lean away, don't be distracted. We are together, I and you and you and me, And as you abide in my word and in my love through obedience, this fruit will be produced to the glory of God and as an evidence of the reality of who you are. We can't hear it enough because the I guarantee you, the moment you get to lunch today or the moment you walk to the next thing you got planned, you'll start to slip back into, because I do, you'll start to slip back into that mentality of like, I gotta do more Christian stuff. Jesus doesn't say do Christian stuff. He says, look at me, remain in me, and I will produce that fruit in you. And that's a vital difference. He's preparing them for the difficulty ahead and he's preparing us as well for the difficulty of the life that is a follower of Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would move in us with a passion and a heart to simply remain in you, 
to be grateful for the way in which you have purified us through your death and resurrection, that you've made us clean by your living word, and that we wouldn't find ourselves tempted to connect to any false vine or to be frustrated by the pruning of the Father, but that we would remain actively still in you, and as a result, this fruit would be produced to your glory and the evidence to the world that we are your disciples. We love you and we need you and we can't live without you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.